0: slow burn media and bill huffman present who killed a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless there are absolutely no clues in the murder of actor bob crane who was known to millions as colonel hogan in the television series hogan's heroes the police in arizona have no idea who entered his room and beat him to death here's more from kim sedgwick of station KTAR. crane's body was found in his room in an apartment complex in scottsdale he was discovered by an actress friend who had an appointment with him. He was curled up in bed with the covers pulled up. An electrical cord was wrapped around his neck. According to the medical examiner, Crane was killed by at least two heavy blows to the head. I believe the man was asleep when uh, he was hit over the head and he never moved after he was hit. And after uh, he died or uh, while he died, the ligature was applied around his neck uh, for good measure, but that did not contribute to his death. The 49-year-old Crane was in Scottsdale, appearing in a production of Beginner's Luck at a local dinner theater. He was best known for his role as Colonel Hogan in the TV series Hogan's Heroes, a hit program which ran six seasons. Police speculate that Crane was murdered with a tire iron. There was no sign of a struggle and no forced entry. Robbery has been ruled out as a motive since valuables remained untouched. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Production. Last month, we looked at some of the most recent cases that have been solved using genealogical DNA. We talked about cases that reached all the way back to the 1950s. This month, I want to take a look at some of the cases that we're still waiting for answers. Some of the cases I've covered and some of them I have not. When you see constant stories telling you how DNA has saved the day, you may find yourself under the belief that as long as you have DNA, you will find the killer. And I, like many investigators, wish this were the case. I want to talk about a couple of very unusual unsolved murders throughout the next four episodes. The first case is one that has been forgotten a little bit over time, despite it involving a high-profile actor found murdered in a hotel room. And I am talking about the murder of Bob Crane. And hopefully, by the end of this episode, we will be one step closer to knowing who killed Bob Crane. And Mr. Bob Crane was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, and was on one of the most popular sitcoms of its time, Hogan's Heroes. Now do yourself some research on the show, and you'll probably end up asking yourself, who gave this show the green light? Long story short, it involved POWs, Nazis, and a bunch of war propaganda. And again, this is a comedy, so whatever. Bob Crane was the lead of the show, and most people in the business really thought he could make the leap to the big screen. But unfortunately for Crane... Hogan's Heroes was canceled after a six-year run in 1971, and Bob was never quite able to find the right path back towards stardom. Now, one of the quirks about Bob Crane was his predilection of amateur pornography. To say this wasn't a scandalous story is like saying the O.J. Simpson trial was just another day in court. According to FilmDaily.com, the real mystery was the life Bob Crane lived outside of the spotlight. Quote, on TV, he was the magic man, bringing comedy and joy to people during a much-needed time. But off-camera, he was a sexual deviant, filming his sexual endeavors, including his orgies with John Henry Carpenter. Now, according to reports after his death on June 29, 1978, the news service reported, quote, actor Bob Crane, who parlayed his boyish looks and sheepish grin into the wise cracking Colonel Hogan on the television's hit series, Hogan's Heroes, was found beaten to death Thursday in an apartment near where he was performing. Crane was appearing at the Windmill Dinner Theater in this Phoenix suburb. Maricopa County Medical Examiner Heinz Karschnig said Crane died from several blows to the head. He said that Crane was hit at least two times with a heavy object and an electrical cord was found tied around his neck. Now, he went on to say there was no indication of forced entry. Again, Hogan's Heroes was broadcast on CBS from 1965 to 1971. And Hogan was the leader of a group of World War II prisoners who um, basically outwitted their German captors, Colonel Clink and Sergeant Schultz, each week. And again, this is a show that was greenlit and was a huge hit in the 1960s and early 70s. The manager of the Winfield Apartments and Victoria Ann Barry, who was a fellow actor were the ones who discovered the body about 2 p.m. when Crane was supposed to be giving a dress to a luncheon, and he was a no-show. Now, Lieutenant Ron Dean said, quote, At this point, it's a riddle, adding it appeared Crane was attacked in his sleep. As mentioned previously, the years following Hogan's heroes found Crane on the outside looking in. He was forced to appear in guest-starring roles on television and tour with regional theaters, not that there's anything wrong with doing that, he was just at the pinnacle of his business, and this was a steep decline. Now, he married his childhood sweetheart, Anne Turjin in 1949, and they had three children before they divorced in 1970. He then married actress Patricia Olson four months after the divorce. You can't tell anything shady was really going on other than the fact that the guy liked to dabble in some amateur pornography. It could have been a random murder. It could have been a deranged fan. Or it could have been something closer to home. And since Crane was into the seedy side of pornography, it seems safe to assume that there could have been something more sinister that led to his murder. The Arizona Republic reported the day after the killing that his body was clad in shorts and undershirts and was found at 2.30 p.m. curled beneath a sheet in the master bedroom on the ground floor apartment of 132A at the Winfield Apartments. Again, the electrical cord that had been tied around Crane's neck. But according to an investigator for the county medical examiner's office, they said, quote, it didn't strangle him. It was put on after he was dead, but it was put on tight. And then investigator Eloy Yasi said, it just looks like somebody walked in on him while he was in bed smacked him in the head a couple of times. Aloy was a former homicide detective with the Phoenix Police Department, and he went on to say that, quote, he was covered up in a sheet as though you would retire, with his knees drawn up in the position like people sleep. And the day after the murder, Lieutenant Ron Dean said, it appeared that one person was responsible for this killing. Quote, we have speculated that the killer either knew him or surprised him. There were no signs of a struggle in the two-bedroom apartment, and therefore... This led to them believing that he knew his killer. This heavy blunt instrument that was used in the killing and crushed Bob Crane's skull was not actually ever found. And nothing was ever said to be missing from the apartment, and we'll get to that later. Now, this is probably why they did not feel a burglary or a robbery had actually occurred. Again, there was no sign of forced entry, and police were checking to determine whether more keys to the apartment were available or whether Crane slept with the door unlocked. The police would go on to state no one was seen leaving the apartment, but they did say one neighbor heard loud voices in Crane's apartment sometime Thursday morning. Lieutenant Dean did say they didn't find any drugs or other quote-unquote contraband in the apartment. He would tell the Arizona Republic, quote, I understand he was not very much of a drinking man, but apparently he has been out to many nightclubs in the area. He indicated that Crane had been to a nightclub the Wednesday night before his death. Now, Dean told the newspaper that no incidents had been reported near the apartment complex before the murder, and Crane apparently had not been involved in any quote-unquote troubles around the valley. Crane was only two weeks away from his 50th birthday, and he had been in Scottsdale since early June to star in Beginner's Luck, which was a light comedy that was playing at the Windmill Dinner Theater. And the apartment that he was killed in was actually leased by the theater for their headline performers. And it was known that at sometime before 1.45 a.m. on Thursday that Crane was in an all-night coffee shop at the Safari Hotel, which was not far from his apartment. Lily Redder, who was the night supervisor, told the Arizona Republic that she saw Crane drinking coffee with a woman and a second couple. She said the group seemed, quote, very congenial, and there was no indication of anything negative. Crane, she added, had been in the coffee shop with his female companion. While police worked to figure out what led to Crane's death, county medical examiner Dr. Heinz Karchnig said that Crane had been dead for several hours before being found, and that was before Victoria Berry came across his body. Her screams were actually so loud that that is what alerted a resident to call police. And again, hours after this discovery of the body, Scottsdale police said they were unable to announce a motive for the crime, and according to the Republic, Crane's personal possessions, such as his wallet, keys, jewelry, and money, were all still in the apartment, as well as the fact that Crane's uh, 1977 Chevrolet was still parked in its regular spot near the apartment. Friends and business associates of the dead actor in Arizona and California said that, That despite estrangement for eight months from his second wife, Patty Olson, of Los Angeles, Crane had been in quote-unquote terrific spirits, Bill McHale, executive producer for the Windmill chain said. He went on to say that we have no idea who could have done this, and we're of course concerned about the other actors. I consider Bob more than a casual acquaintance. We were once a year friends whenever he played one of our theaters. I spoke with him a week ago, and he was enjoying his work, enjoying his life, even though there was this divorce trouble, and even then he expressed hope for that. Crane's wife received word of her husband's death while she was vacationed in in Seattle. She just said, oh my god, she was just shocked, said Miss Gudegast, who was Crane's wife's sister. On a telephone interview, she told the Republic that she had no idea why anybody would want to kill Crane. Quote, it's a total mystery. No one knows anything at this point other than that he was found dead. It's a total mystery. Now, during his three-week stay in Scottsdale, Crane had been visited by a blonde and a young boy, which residents believed were his wife and son. They had been seen around the swimming pool together. This was at the apartment building that he had been staying. And while police in Hollywood were trying to comprehend this tragedy, reporters began looking deeper into Crane's life. It turns out, in 1970, he was divorced by his childhood sweetheart, Anne. I mentioned this before. But it was after 21 years, and he was ordered to pay her $1,700 a month in alimony. And that's not cheap for this era. Now, he remarried almost immediately, which you can read into or not. And Crane's second wife actually appeared with her husband in Hogan's Heroes. She played the Camp Commandment's secretary in the comedy farce, and... The Republic reported that Crane's life was, quote, a classic show business ascent. They state that he was born in Waterbury, Connecticut. He began entertaining as a musician. He was a drummer in high school, later played with the Connecticut Symphony, and maintained these skills. During his previous appearances in the Valley to play the windmill, he spoke at the United Fund Banquet and was a Toastmaster at testimonial dinners for the National Conference of Christians and Jews. Now, his obit says Crane was a non-drinker and a non-smoker, and he turned to broadcasting and became a successful disc jockey in Connecticut, New York, and then finally landed in Los Angeles, where he became an instant hit with his morning show on KNX in Los Angeles. And, of course, this led to acting offers. On television, he played in The Donna Reed Show, Love American Style, and made numerous appearances alongside Dick Van Dyke, Dinah Shore, and as Johnny Carson's guest host on The Tonight Show. In movies, Crane shone in Return to Peyton Place man trap and super dad again these are basically clippings of his obituary on the stage he starred in send me no flowers and cactus flower and toured with beginner's luck for several years including its initial productions at the windmill in 1973 and again this case is one of those cases that if it happened today it would be tabloid fodder for every gossip magazine out there so bob crane gets killed the one thing that is left behind is a recorder that's hooked up to a telephone at his los angeles apartment and it says hi obviously i'm not home but i'm back in town please do not hang up leave your name your telephone number and the approximate time you called and i'll call you back as soon as i possibly can so again that was the obituary obituary that went out across the country after his death we started talking a little bit about the darker side of bob crane But it would not be too long before more questions about his murder became apparent. The UPI reported that investigators hunting the killer of actor Bob Crane said the focus of the probe had turned from Crane's business and theatrical backgrounds to his social life. And there are 15 to 20 persons police wanted to question. The prime suspect detectives, according to Lieutenant Ron Dean, was John Carpenter. Carpenter had been with Crane the day before he was killed. This is the first time we had a chance to talk to Carpenter, Dean said. We have had limited discussions on the phone. He's been quite cooperative with us. He's been able to put us in touch with family and friends who we can interview. Dean said Carpenter returned with him to Scottsdale Sunday night just to help investigators identify persons and photographs found in Crane's apartment. Now, the photographs. Yeah, those photographs. They were of nude men and women, and Dean wouldn't elaborate beyond that. You can assume these weren't the most family-friendly photos. Let's just say that. And he also said the focus of the investigation has switched from Crane's business to his social life. Jim Radcliffe from the Arizona Daily Star wrote in 1987, nine years ago, today, quote, at 2.30 not long before a tire iron-like weapon slammed twice into his head, killing him. He had, as usual, performed in a comedy at a local theater that night and trolled the Phoenix area for women. The gregarious, good-looking gentleman who portrayed Colonel Hogan on television's Hogan's Heroes series was often successful. The Valley of the Sun treated him well. Crane, though, was on a losing streak. Radcliffe writes more than 550 pages of police documents made available by the Freedom of Information Act, coupled with interviews present a hazy view of what occurred that night. Apparently, Bob Crane had said to a Los Angeles Times reporter, I want to go out like Nelson Eddy. You know, die while I'm working. That's just me. What Crane was doing in the weeks before he died was having sex with a stream of women. Radcliffe writes, Bob Crane's losing streak certainly did not mean celibacy, and spending evenings as the lead in Beginner's Luck at the since-closed Windmill Dinner Theater, helped him garner lots of women. This guy was a sheep in wolf's clothing, or a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm sorry, how how does that go? Eh, whatever. Anyway, but before his death, Bob Crane had thought he was going to be making a comeback. He had anticipated a made-for-television movie. He wanted to get a new home in California after his divorce, Quote, the actor seemed to enjoy a playboy's life too much for marriage, although he had four children in two marriages. On the theater-theater tour, his looks and fame, as I mentioned, lured women, many in their 20s. Crane would then meet them in nightclubs and through friends. Many had intercourse with Crane and allowed him to remember them with Polaroids or videotape. I don't think I need to mention that this is very creepy, but I'm going to. That's very creepy. Don't do that. In the Star article, Radcliffe says, quote, 10 days before he died of head injuries, Crane had lunch with a Dallas-area 29-year-old. She read his palm, telling him he had a short lifeline. Crane responded that he would be happy just to live until his 50th birthday. He died two weeks short. There was one character who was known to frequent Crane's apartment and later told police, I don't know why anyone would kill him. He was such a nice man. John H. Carpenter did not have Crane's looks or celebrity status. Just 50, Carpenter often met the actor on the road, and together they combed clubs for women. Crane often spoke well of his good longtime friend. Again, this is all in the Arizona Star article. Scottsdale Police Lieutenant Ron Dean does not speak well of Carpenter. The case's original head investigator, Dean, says he believes with 95% certainty that John H. Carpenter killed Bob Crane. Numerous strands of circumstantial evidence, Dean says, support this. When you add them up, you can get over 20 circumstances real quick. Charles Hyder was far from convinced, and he was the assistant United States attorney, District of Arizona, in 1978. And he was, again, the county attorney for Maricopa County and refused to prosecute the case. He told the paper they had nothing. Tom Collins, not the drink, was Hyder's successor as the county attorney, and he agreed. Collins said, quote, there were all sorts of people who had better motives than Carpenter did. A boyfriend or a husband of a woman Crane had had sex with are possibilities, Collins had said to the reporter. Others, including Carpenter, mentioned this motive to police. Crane even told a friend that a husband once followed him. But on 2.20 p.m. on June 29, Bob Crane lay dead in the back bedroom of the Scottsdale apartment. And again, he had two parallel one-inch-long lacerations that tracked the head behind the left ear. Blood had been spotted on the wall. A black electrical cord, as I've mentioned before, was tied tightly around Crane's neck, but they don't think that had anything to do with the death. The examiner actually states the blows were for death. It seems the cord was for emotion, a passion-killing. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. It's been really great getting back to normal this summer. I've headed to the movies, and I've even caught some rays. And while enjoying the weather, I have given my brain a refresher, and I did so by opening Best Fiends on my phone. Doing true crime research calls for a mental break now and then, and that's why I turn to Best Fiends. Since solving puzzles is my thing, Best Fiends offers me a new challenge every day. Best Fiends is way more fun than any other matching puzzle games out there. It's also one of those games that makes 20 minutes feel like 20 seconds. Oh, and it's totally free to download. One of the coolest parts though about Best Fiends is there's something new going on all the time, whether it's a new challenge, more levels, or a fun monthly event. And since I'm cruising through these levels, that means anyone can play. I've discovered moving through these different levels has become a mindful experience. Plus, collecting all those different characters is another reason I turned to Best Fiends for a challenge. So if you're tired of the same old puzzle games, this game is for you. And if you don't have a favorite character yet, I suggest Temper. He's small but mighty. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. We may have moved past 2020, but 2021 is still looking fairly grim. But today I'm happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient. Because in this current state that we live in, it just has to be. So now you can get help on your own time at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule a secure video or phone session. Or you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if for whatever reason you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. So if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, stress, anger, relationship issues, heck, you're not getting a good night's sleep, or have LGBT matters, or just low self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The thing I like the most is it's actually affordable. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com WHO. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and then you get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com/who. Where do we stand? Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? He's dead. They think John Carpenter did it. Uh, One thing that they do find in the apartment are videotapes and reel-to-reel tapes, including scenes from Crane having sex with women to Saturday Night Live to Crane and Barry rehearsing Beginner's Luck, Hogan's Heroes, his wife and his seven-year-old son celebrating Father's Day, the news, an edited version of Saturday Night Fever. And then his recorder recorded a Good Morning America segment after his death. The only item missing apparently was the album with polaroids of the scottsdale area women and at 3 pm lieutenant dean arrived at the apartment that was just east of scottsdale road they couldn't actually figure out if it was crane or carpenter that had been beaten to death because his face was so crushed and again dean reports that afternoon crane's telephone rang dean had barry answer it then he took the phone the caller identified himself as john carpenter carpenter said He last spoke to the actor at 1 a.m. A woman Crane dated called, so did Robert Crane Jr., a son of the actor. Carpenter got through a second time. He again mentioned that his last contact with Crane was around 1 o'clock in the morning. And the report continues, for the second time, he failed to ask what police were doing in his friend's apartment. Without any witnesses, a weapon, or a motive, the Scottsdale Police Department began interviewing more than 100 people. Friends, women, relatives, actors, people who had contact with him in his last hours. And everything, basically, according to Dean, pointed to Carpenter as the prime suspect. A lab test in 1978 revealed that the blood type was type B, which was 1 out of 10 people, and that matched cranes. Dean reasoned that Carpenter splattered blood about when he allegedly disposed of the weapon by tossing it out of the passenger's window. It's amazing to think about how far we've come just from determining blood type. And that was 1970. I and mean, that was a, a, my lifetime ago. And we have jumped leaps and bounds since then. It's amazing. Dean goes on to state that there are other pieces of evidence, like the electrical cord was from another room, even though the, uh, there were cords that were closer to the body. This suggests the killer knew the apartment, according to Dean. Clues also suggest Crane welcomed the attacker. Barry said she found the door unlocked, and police did not find any signs of forcible entry. An interesting note was Crane never wore his wristwatch to bed and rarely his boxers, according to his wife. Apparently, he was napping while waiting for someone. That's what investigators believed. And to then-County Attorney Hyder, the evidence was not nearly enough. The paper reports, quote, "...the blood on the linens could be a guy shaving who scratched himself. We don't know what it was from. The blood in the car? What does it show? Nobody can give me that answer." What does the one tiny spot of blood of that matched crane's, what does it tell you? It doesn't show me who killed him. It doesn't show me it's his blood. I mean, it's nothing. Hyder's office and police disagreed on more than evidence. Dean says the county attorney's office was afraid to take on the case that was not a certain success. He says Hyder destroyed chances for a plea bargain by saying publicly a case could not be built. Hyder says Scottsdale police did a poor investigation focusing on Carpenter. They failed to search the city for leads and collect evidence from the apartment. Dean said the case, albeit non-concrete, of course, is pretty good. Quote, what other way do you put the murderer in that bedroom other than by circumstances? You're not going to have a witness there. Who can you put back in that apartment? By phone, we put Carpenter in there for sure. Quote, nobody took any pictures during the murder, so you've got to put it back together by circumstances in this case. And almost every other one, unless there's somebody standing there with a smoking gun, there are very, very rare cases. Hyder argued this case. The basic premise, for any prosecutor is that you should never file any case unless the evidence shows you beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. If you cannot convince yourself, you don't file it. You certainly aren't going to file in the first degree murder case against somebody where their life is at stake. Like I told these guys, you know, you may be right on your suspect. I mean, on judgment day, when we all go to wherever we go, God may look back and say, hey, they were right. But if we can't prove it, it doesn't mean a damn thing. In 1981, after Collins was elected and replaced Hyder, the new attorney looked at the case and he declined to prosecute too. When I looked over this whole thing, he said, the only thing that pointed to Carpenter was opportunity. There's nothing else. There's no evidence, no motive. It's zero. There's nothing there that made me think he did it. I'm not saying he did not do it. There was just nothing there to make me think he did do it. Nowadays, leads are worked when they come in with nothing much merit surfacing in recent years. Michael Gannon scottsdale's chief of police of five years says a confession or a witness to a confession is needed to close the case and dean says that perhaps a microscope capable of picking up fingerprints on the electrical cord will be developed again this is 1987 i said they're thinking about this so good thinking collins goes on to state a statement with details a confession a weapon positively tied to somebody some physical evidence After this length of time, it would have been, and would need to be, a pretty strong case. Now, over the years, there have been many leads. They include a confession by a man who was in prison the night of the slain. The Nazis upset how Hogan's heroes portrayed them. And one of the psychics who offered information said, okay, psychic, again, always involved, said that the suspect's name starts with a W and was an ex-boyfriend of Crane's girlfriend. And another crazy theory was suggested that Colonel Clink, a Colonel Hogan rival in the series, was responsible. Oh, good old days of good old speculation. But according to police reports, this is how Bob Crane spent his last hours. On June 28, 1978, beginner's luck began at 8.30 p.m. In the play, Crane, as a married IBM executive, has a tryst. A fire damages the woman's apartment building, and the New York Times covers the story. The paper runs a picture that happens to include Crane letting his wife in on the rendezvous. Crane, exiled from his home, sets out to repair the couple's relationship. The show finished at 10.05 p.m. Quote, Bob was extremely tired when he did the show, and he acted tired on stage, and I'd never seen him that down in a performance before, one of the actors had told police. Now the play's four actors took a bow, then the other three left the stage. Crane talked to the audience and invited them to the lobby where he would sign autographs. Then Crane met Carpenter in the dressing room area, and by 10.30 p.m., they left the Windmill Dinner Theater in Crane's Monte Carlo. They stopped several hundred yards later at an Arco gas station where an attendant replaced a flat tire with the spare. One police theory has Carpenter sabotaging the tire to give himself an opportunity to kill Crane on a dark street making it look like a street crime, according to Dean. Fifteen minutes later, Crane and Carpenter drove to the actor's apartment, and Crane telephoned his estranged wife. After 11 p.m., the couple in the apartment above settled into bed. Crane's screaming at his wife woke them up. If Crane kept ranting, the Scottsdale woman told her husband he would be unable to perform the next day. A loud noise, which she believed was the phone being slammed down, an officer noted prompted the husband to say, it's over, you can get some sleep. The neighbors heard nothing more. A Phoenix nightclub was next. There, before midnight, Crane called a woman he had met several weeks earlier and asked her to join him. They agreed to meet at the Safari Hotel's coffee shop in 45 minutes. While at the club, another woman met Crane and Carpenter, whom the actor introduced as his manager. Crane was upset, mentioning problems with his wife. The three left at 12.30 a.m. and drove to Crane's apartment complex. Carpenter and the woman got into Carpenter's car. Shortly, the threesome regrouped at the Scottsdale coffee shop, and the first woman appeared. They ate breakfast after 2 a.m., all four strolling to the parking lot. The woman with Crane stood with the actor for 20 minutes. Mostly, Crane talked about wanting to go to her or his place. Carpenter took his partner home, drove to the sunburst at 2.45 a.m., called Crane. I said, are you alone? And he says, yeah, I'm alone. She said, no way. Carpenter told police. He then said, I'm going to get up later that morning and leave, and I will call you from California. He says, okay. Crane mentioned he was standing in his shorts editing Saturday Night Fever. So I says, okay. And that's it. So he thought. Fast forward to 1992 and a new deputy maricopa county attorney by the name of richard romley took office and ordered a new look at the county's unsolved murders brent whiting who was a writer for the arizona republic wrote a story about bob crane and john carpenter's lured friendship and how it centered on pornography and sex and according to whiting and the prosecutors this is what gave carpenter a motive for murder Whiting goes on to report Deputy Maricopa County Attorney Robert Schutz told jurors in his opening statements Monday that Carpenter beat Crane to death, possibly with a camera tripod, because Crane had grown tired of him and wanted to end their 15-year relationship, and then that would have canceled Carpenter's ticket to a life of easy sex. Of course, Carpenter's lawyer, Stephen Avia told jurors the investigation of the case was flawed. Avia, a deputy public defender, said Schatz will be unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Carpenter killed Crane. Carpenter, who was 66 and a Los Angeles video equipment salesman, was charged with first-degree murder and had to spend $98,000 on bail. Schatz referred to Crane as a pied piper in attracting women for him and Carpenter. Quote, Bob Crane became a source for John Carpenter, and he could never obtain that for himself. During the trial, Schutz made the remark that Crane enjoyed the first choice of women, leaving Carpenter with the quote-unquote leftovers. Schutz couldn't help by adding that Crane had a habit of making videotapes of some of the sexual encounters. And some of the video tapes, he said, will be shown as evidence during the trial to demonstrate the secondary position that Carpenter took with Crane in joint encounters with the same women, Schutz said. Now Schutz admitted that the Scottsdale Police Department and other law enforcement agencies did a poor job investigating the sixteen year old murder case. He said that Carpenter remained a suspect for fourteen years, but wasn't charged until nineteen ninety two because of the quote unquote egos of various law enforcement who couldn't get along after the killing. Avia said that many officers correctly determined there was insufficient evidence against Carpenter, providing the real reason why his client wasn't immediately charged. Schutz told jurors that Carpenter is linked to the slain by strains found on the door panel of a car rented by the suspect before Crane's death. Schutz said that no murder weapon was ever found. He said police originally believed that Crane was killed with a golf club or tire iron, but Schutz believed now it was a camera tripod. Carpenter's attorney Avia said the evidence of the evidence saying that a California crime expert hired by the prosecution in 1990 examined the door panel stains and determined that they weren't even caused by blood. In addition, Avia said the expert who performed the test in 1978 failed to retain any evidence from the test, raising questions about the finding of type B blood. So you would think all this is not going in the prosecution's direction. Well, you're right because Pat Morrison of the LA Times wrote that friend of actor Bob Crane, who shared the TV actor's sexual conquests, was acquitted Monday by a jury in Arizona in the 1978 murder of the Hogan's Hero star. After the verdict by the Maricopa County jury was announced, John Henry Carpenter stood on the court steps and said, my life is back together after 16 years. Prosecutors had tried to show that Carpenter killed Crane because he feared that the actor would cut off the friendship and Carpenter's access to women. Even after two and a half days of deliberation, jurors felt the evidence was lacking. Quote, there wasn't any proof when jurors said, you can't prove someone guilty on speculation. So again, this is one of those interesting cases that kind of has fallen to the wayside as far as what we all know of because in 1994 you know the case kind of hit a dead end i mean carpenter was the prime suspect so if you'll just do one more time and hit the fast forward button to 2018 there was a dna announcement and that would go on to clear john carpenter fox 10 phoenix reporter john hook retested dna samples found on carpenter's car using new technology as part of the investigation into the murder and was assisted by local law enforcement. He revealed the results in front of a panel that included the case prosecutor, Carpenter's defense attorney, and Crane's son, Bob Crane Jr. Hook said that, quote, the DNA found on the door of John Carpenter's rental car is not from Bob Crane. Hook said, quote, the tests actually picked up two DNA profiles. A major contributor is from a man whose identity is unknown. The second DNA profile is too degraded for any conclusions. Crane Jr. was surprised by the news, which further cleared Carpenter and added more mystery to the case. He said during the live reveal, quote, I'm shocked right now. Unfortunately for Carpenter, he died four years after his acquittal in 1998 but his attorney would say that this is wonderful news for john who has passed away to know that he has finally been vindicated not only in a court of law but in a court of public opinion and that concludes this week's episode of who killed bob crane and we don't know the bottom line is there possibly could have been two people involved and the one thing we do know is that it wasn't john carpenter so unless there's another dna breakthrough we are kind of left with another cold case and a cold case that has a lot of mystery and a lot of intrigue. So thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And many thanks to the great reporters of the UPI, the Arizona Republic, the Arizona Star, and many other sources for making this episode possible. And thank you to this week's sponsors, bestfiends and betterhelp.com. You can find new episodes of Who Killed? every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you like this podcast you can help support directly by clicking on the link in the show notes, by finding me on PayPal, or if you have the Venmo app, you can donate with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Thank you to everyone who has helped keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. You can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening. Until next time, be healthy and stay safe. Have you ever wondered about things that go bump in the night or objects in the sky or other things you just couldn't explain? Then join me, Jim Moward, on my podcast, The Mallard Report. Each week, you'll find engaging conversations with guests who are authors, historians, and scholars who lend their expertise as we discuss current events and venture into the fringe and paranormal. The Mallard Report hits controversies head on, yet remains conversational and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform.